All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, get started then with uh, tonight's lesson. And uh, we are talking about the doctrine of regeneration. And we are looking at um, Article 6 of the, the 1646 London Baptist Confession of Faith as we continue to make our way through it. And let me just read it first off before we uh, get into the lesson, in case you didn't get a chance to read it before coming here. It says, All the elect, being loved of God with an everlasting love, are redeemed, quickened, and saved, not by themselves, nor their own works, lest any man should boast, but only and wholly by God, of his own free grace and mercy, through Jesus Christ, who is made unto us by God, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And all in all, that he that rejoices might rejoice in the Lord. And uh, so, as we talk about the doctrine of regeneration, I mean, this is uh, obviously a very important doctrine. And, um, you know, it sounds like a fancy word. A lot of Christians may not know what that means, but it, it simply means new birth, right? When we're talking about the doctrine of regeneration, we are talking about what the Bible teaches about uh, the new birth. Um, but before um, we can even talk about how that happens, um, how does the new birth come into effect, I think the authors of the 1646 um really got it right when they started this paragraph by saying all the elect being loved of God with an everlasting love. I mean, that's, that's the starting point, right? If you're going to rightly understand the new birth and how that happens, um, you've got to go back to the beginning, right? We've got to go back to the beginning of where it all, of where it all starts. And so understanding regeneration, um, the doctrine of regeneration entails, it necessitates understanding God's eternal love for his people. Um, and so we see, for example, in Romans 8, 29, Romans 8, 29, we've looked at this passage before, but here's something that I just want to point out. So we're familiar with Romans 8.28. That one is quoted very often. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. <clears throat> then verse 29 said, says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Right? Now, what does that mean that those whom he foreknew... Right. Um, when we talk about the foreknowledge of God, those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Now, I have heard it explained that, well, yes, you know, those whom, you know, God uh, looked down the corridors of time and those whom he foresaw, those whom he knew in advance, those whom he foreknew would choose for him, he predestined them. There's all kinds of ontological problems with that, with that view. Uh, the main one is that, uh, just chronologically speaking, if you make the argument that before God 
predestined anyone. He had to first look down the corridors of time to see who would choose for him. And then based on that, he predestined them. If that is true, then there had to be a point in time when God didn't know, which would then call into question the omniscience of God. It would also mean that God learns, right? Because he had to first look, he saw, he learned something new, he gained new information, and based on that new information, he made the decision to predestine certain ones. So now we're saying that God actually learns, and uh, now we're getting into process theology, which we know is a heresy, right? That's not what Paul means when he says those whom God foreknew. Uh, the word foreknow there in the Greek is proginosko, and it's a two-part word. It's a compound word. The first part uh, is pro in the Greek, pro, and it means in advance or beforehand. And the second Greek word, ginosko, means to know, and it can mean simply an intellectual knowledge, but in many instances, it carries the meaning of an intimate knowledge. And you're familiar with these, for example, in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, you know, you will conceive and give birth to a son and he will be uh, the son of God, right? Mary's response, at least literally in the Greek, and you see this in uh, the, the, the King James, I believe it's this way in the New American Standard, uh, her response is, how can that be? For I have never known a man, right? Well, what does she mean by that? She doesn't mean... I don't know what a man is. I have no intellectual knowledge of what a man is. That's not what she means. She means I've never been intimate with a man, right? We see that also in uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. After Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, in the Greek, in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, um, it says, and Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Right? It doesn't simply mean that he met her and said, Hi, I'm Adam, and suddenly she was pregnant. Right? Uh, we know what is meant by that. Right? It means that Adam had an intimate, loving, personal relationship with Eve, and she conceived. Right? So that's the glory of this text, is that Paul is saying, for those whom God for new those he predestined. That is, those whom God foreloved from eternity past. Before God even created the world. And we know that because Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that those who have been chosen were chosen from before the foundations of the earth. So before God even created the earth, he already knew his people, he knew the elect, he knew them by name, and he had an intimate, personal love for them. God loved you before you were even created. He loved you with a deep love before he even laid the foundations of the earth. And so they began this, this, this clause by saying, all the elect being loved of God with an everlasting love, an eternal love that goes, that has an no beginning and no end. God has eternally loved his people. 
They then say, are redeemed. So these individuals whom God foreloved from eternity past are redeemed, quickened and saved, not by themselves nor their own works, lest any man should boast, but only and wholly by God of his own free grace and mercy. Yes. So you're saying eternity past, then that would mean if you look at the full scope of what that comprehends, which would make a head explode if you thought about it. Right. It's, it's an infinite knowledge backwards yeah. and forwards. Right. So right. there's really, like you said, there's really no beginning right. to the four new. Right. Yeah. 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 God is infinite in all his ways. And it's mind blowing. I mean, we cannot even begin to fathom. You can't even begin to scratch the surface of what that's like. Um, But that's what makes God God. Right. I mean, how how big of a God do you have to be to simply will the entire galaxy into existence? God simply wills it into existence. I desire for there to be, and so there is, the galaxy, the universe, all of the stars and planets. Um, that is beyond our comprehension. Um, but he is God, and, and we are not. And those whom he foreloved, he redeemed and quickened and saved, not by themselves, not the, their own works, lest any should boast, but wholly by God. Holy. I love that they put that word in there. Not H-O-L-Y, right? W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy of God by His free grace and mercy. In other words, the work of regeneration is a monergistic work, right? Monergistic, and there's there's a good word to know. Um, Monos, meaning alone, right? And Uh, So it comes from the Greek word. Manos is the Greek word for only or alone. And gineo, to work, is the Greek word. So monergistic means a a sole work alone as opposed to synergistic, right? When we talk about synergism or something being synergistic, it is two or more things working together, right? Salvation is not a synergistic work. It's not God working with us and it's not us working with God. It is a monergistic work of God uh, alone. First of all, the word regeneration, where does that word come from? It, it comes from the Greek word uh, polygenesia. There's a mouthful, full, right? Uh, polygenesia. And, um, and that word only appears in the New Testament twice, um, the entire New Testament. We first see it um, on the lips of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, Verse 28, kind of an interesting use there. Um, Matthew 19, 28. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now the ESV has a footnote that says Greek, in the regeneration. Uh, and that's, that would be literal, right? That's the word where Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. That is, when all things are made new, 
when all things are regenerated, when there is a new created order, uh, a new heaven and a new earth. The other place we see this is Titus chapter 3, verse 5. In Titus 3, 5, we're getting closer to the meaning that we are discussing here. Um, Titus 3, 5 says, uh, He, that is God, saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we see there from this text that regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit, that it's the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, right? And so that word, uh, polygenesia, again, comes from two Greek words. The first word is polyne, which means again, right? It means to, to, to do over, it means again. And genesis, which means birth. That's the Greek word, genesis, simply means birth. So the word simply means a rebirth or a new birth, right? So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the, the doctrine of regeneration. We're talking about the doctrine of the new birth. Now, interestingly enough, even though we see that word only twice um, in Matthew 19.28, and then we see it again in Titus 3.5, primarily where this doctrine comes from, um, where the majority of this teaching actually comes from, is from Jesus in a passage where we don't actually find the word, and that is in John chapter 3. Right? John chapter 3, verses 1 uh, to 9, and you're probably familiar with that, but let's, let's turn there and look at John 3. This is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And he says to him, and we see this in verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. You know, it's interesting that if he really knew that, why does he come to Jesus by night? Right? Well, he's concerned about being seen. Right? So he's not really ready to come out in the open quite yet. Um, so he comes to Jesus by night when it's dark. Hopefully no one sees him visiting with Jesus. But he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? Unless a person is born a second time. There has to be a rebirth, a regeneration, if you will. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's a legitimate question. You know, I, what do you mean born a second time? Born twice, Jesus, you're, you're losing me here. What are you talking about? Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, there's debate on what the born of water means. Some think it means baptism. Others think it means just a physical birth. Uh, I lean toward the idea that I think it's a physical birth. Unless someone is born of water physically with the breaking of water, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
right? You can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, flesh gives birth to flesh, is what Jesus is saying. Spirit gives birth to spirit. The Holy Spirit gives birth to spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, the, the Greek word for wind is the word pneumos, which also is the same word for spirit. Right? It's the same word. And so, did Jesus mean spirit? Does he mean wind? It's the exact same word that we see earlier where he talks about the spirit. It's the same word. The wind, or the spirit, blows where it wishes, and the Greek word for wish is the word thelo, which also carries the meaning of desire, right? Very oftentimes that Greek word thelo means to desire to do something. Thus, the wind or the spirit blows where it desires, where it wants to. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So what Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus is that the spiritual birth is something that can only be done by the Holy Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but it is the Holy Spirit that gives birth to Spirit, and the Spirit chooses to whom that happens, right? The, the Spirit blows where it desires. You see the effects of it just like with the wind, right? I mean, nowadays with, you know, all of our modern technology, you know, when it's windy outside, we can actually get on and look at radar and see where it's blowing from, right, and how it got here, and we can kind of see where it's going, But in the first century world, that wasn't the case. They could see the effects of the wind. The trees were blowing. Things were moving. But they really had no idea where it came from or where it was going to go after this. You know, is it going to continue to go north? Is it going to turn west in a different direction? They had no idea, no way of knowing, right? Jesus is using that as an illustration to say, the wind blows where it whistles. You You see the effects of it, but you have no idea where it's going or where it comes from. Right? So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, there's not a discernible pattern. There's not a discernible pattern. You can have a family of eight kids, and six get saved and two don't, or all eight of them do, or none of them do, or one does, and the other seven go off on their own. Right? There's no discernible pattern. The Holy Spirit regenerates whom He desires to regenerate. But we know that's not arbitrary based on Romans 8, 29, right? Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. So the Holy Spirit comes into the world in order to regenerate those whom God foreknew and those whom he predestined. Jesus' words, yes. So basically what you're saying or just said is it's, it's not a Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not a monistic thing. Really, it's a triune thing in the sense of one God that is involved in regeneration as a whole, in, in wherever. Um, yes, I mean, all three persons of the Godhead are involved in our salvation, absolutely. The work of regeneration would appear from Scripture to be the primary responsibility of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, we can get really deep and heady with this in that you can't separate the three, right? Wherever the Holy Spirit is, God the Father and God the Son are there in some sense. Wherever Christ is, the Spirit and the Father are there in some sense. But when we look at the work of redemption, um, we, we theologians talk about the fact that it is the Father who lays out the plan of redemption. It is the, the Son who carries out the plan of redemption, comes to earth, dies on the cross, earns perfect righteousness. And it is the Holy Spirit that applies the work of redemption. So it's the Holy Spirit who does the work of regenerating, of opening the eyes to see the gospel, of giving us faith and new life, of bringing us to life. That's the role of the Holy Spirit uh, to do that. So that's the scripture that says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Yes, yes. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's absolutely right. Right? That is the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, and again, that's not to say that the other two persons of the Godhead don't have any part to play in that, but it is primarily the role of the Holy Spirit uh, that does that. Um, but to go to your, uh, this actually speaks a little bit to what you were saying, uh, is that Jesus seems to be echoing the language of Ezekiel 36. And in Ezekiel 36... Verse 25 to 27, here's what God says. We see that in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, of Israel, thus says the Lord God, right? So this is, uh, this is um, Yahweh speaking, the Lord Yahweh speaking. Verse 20, then verse 25, I, God, will sprinkle water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you, I, God, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So there you see the role of God the Father. God the Father says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to remove your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. So, so in one sense, all three persons of the Godhead do play a role in this. But when we talk about regeneration, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit um, removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, gives us a heart that is sensitive to the things of God, gives us a heart that desires to be obedient, right? Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Yeah. Isn't that the doctrine, what we're speaking of in general, the doctrine of illumination? Um, yes, that would be part of it. The doctrine of illumination is opening our eyes to the glory of Christ. Um, you know, we would get that from Second Corinthians chapter 4, um, that if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those whom are perishing whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, right? Um, but then God says, God says, let there be light. And so that's the Holy Spirit. So the doctrine of illumination specifically speaks to opening our eyes and our minds to understand the things of God and to see God. Uh, those two are closely related. The doctrine of illumination and the doctrine of regeneration are very closely related. 
because you can't have one without the other, right? Where there's illumination, there's regeneration. And where there's regeneration, there's illumination. They're two sides of the same coin. Um, but yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's a good point. And that's something that we certainly want to keep in mind. Um, and so this is the work of regeneration. And then our paragraph goes on to say, um, nor their own works, lest any man should boast. I mean, the authors are clearly borrowing from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? Most of you can probably quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but let's look at it and just read it. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this, that is, I think that this is a reference back to the grace and the faith, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, right? The grace that brings you to Christ and the faith that enables you to believe, Scripture says, is not your own doing. It is a gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. So what Paul is telling us here in this passage is that at the end of the day, no one is going to get into heaven and be able to pat themselves on the back because they did something good, right? Because they made a good choice at some point in the past. Or because when they heard the gospel, they were a little smarter than the next person and they knew a good deal when they saw it or that they were a little less prideful than the next person, or they were a little more humble, because that's what you would have to say. If you say that people are saved, that when we get saved, it is because we were less prideful than the next person, or we were a little more humble than the next person, then we can take credit, right? We can honestly say that God did 99.999% of it, but we did something. Right? We had to be humble enough. We had to, we had to be smart enough uh, to, to see a good thing and to take advantage of it. But Paul says, lest no one should boast. Right? At the end of the day... That's a great question. Yes. amazing to me all the pastors that don't see it. Right. I think, yeah, let me just respond to that real quick. I, I just, I think that um, in the end, I think, I think that the, the doctrine of, of, of election, uh, sovereign grace, uh, regeneration as we're understanding it here, you know, it just, it strikes at the heart of human pride. And, and human beings by nature like to believe we did something, right? We, we did something. I mean, we, we contributed somehow to this. Um, you know, it, it's been said, um, I, I don't know if this is valid or not, but it's been said that Luther was once asked, you know, do we contribute anything to, uh, to our salvation? And he said, yes, sin and resistance. Um, I've not been able to verify that quote yet, um, but uh, it sounds like something Luther would say. Um, but it, that is what Scripture tells us, that we contribute zero to our regeneration. This is what Jesus is talking about when Jesus uses the analogy of 
of a physical birth. And he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, and the spirit gives birth to the spirit, right? When we think back to our own physical birth, who in this room had a choice in that matter? Right? Anybody here decide, have any, did anybody ask you if you wanted to be physically born? Right? We had no choice in the matter. It just happened, right? And here we are. Jesus is essentially telling Nicodemus, this is how the new birth takes place. You don't have a choice in the matter. God simply chooses to save you and to make you born again, to regenerate your dead soul, to open your eyes to the glory of Christ. And so in the end, God gets all the glory. Yes, Bob, you were going to say something. Anyway, I was going to say, Yeah, James is talking about the, the evidence of faith. And that's what he means when he says, I will show you my faith by my works, right? The evidence of our faith is how we live, right? That we desire uh, to live a life. That's what God was talking about in Ezekiel that we just read, right? And you will desire to walk in my laws is what Ezekiel says. When I give you a new heart and a new spirit, you will have a desire to walk in obedience to the Word of God. If a person does not have that desire to live in obedience to the Word of God, they're not saved, right? The evidence of salvation is a desire to please God. No one has to make you. No one has to remind you because the Holy Spirit in your own conscience reminds you every day, I need to be living for the glory of God because he died on the cross for my sins, and I love him, and I want to please him. And so, yeah, this doctrine can be difficult for people to, to understand, but if we rightly understand the doctrine of human nature, right, the doctrine of depravity, if we rightly understand from Scripture the spiritual condition that human beings are in, unbelieving human beings, then we understand that regeneration has to be this way, right? because dead people can't make decisions for themselves. They're dead, right? They are non-responsive. You can talk to them all you want. You can try to convince them to get off of the, you know, the trauma table in the trauma room. They're not going to move if they don't have a pulse, right? Um, and so when we understand that, we understand this is how salvation has to take place. Otherwise, no one would be saved. No one would be saved. What's that? I said we're praying for 911. That's right. Hope the Spirit answers. That's right. And uh, and so then the 1646 then tells us that this takes place through 
Jesus Christ, right? All the elect being loved of God with an everlasting love are redeemed, quickened, and saved, not by themselves nor their own works, lest any man should boast, but only and wholly by God of his own free grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. I think that's a really important phrase that they include there, through Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. One verse. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, right? Talking about the elect, talking about believers. God has not destined us for wrath, but he has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him through our Lord Jesus Christ. This means that Christ is the means through which saving grace comes uh, to us, right? Uh, it's not just that regeneration brings us into union with Christ, right? It's not just that regeneration brings us into union with Christ. It is that being brought into union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit is regeneration. That is what it means to be regenerated, is to be brought into union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thus, our salvation is through Christ, not just based upon Christ, not just by faith in Christ, but by means of our union with Christ. We are saved because we are inside of Christ, and Christ can never be lost. We are we are righteous in the eyes of God because we are inside of Christ who is perfectly righteous. We are sinless. Our sins are atoned for. That Greek word for atonement, hilasterion, means a covering, right? Our sins are covered from the view of God the Father. Why? Because we are inside of His Son who is perfectly sinless and He is perfectly righteous. Yes? That's right. That's right. We are positionally perfect. Yes. Because in and of ourselves, we're not perfect. In and of ourselves, even as believers, we are still sinful creatures, right? We still sin. Um, and we are not righteous in and of ourselves. We are unrighteous. But we are considered to be righteous because we are credited with Christ's righteousness. We are forgiven because Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. So our sins are atoned for in the eyes of God. So we are positionally righteous. And the very next phrase of the paragraph actually speaks to that very thing. It goes on to say, through Jesus Christ, who is made unto us by God wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Right? Look at 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. This is a great verse. I love this verse. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, right? The doctrine of union with Christ is so incredibly important and encouraging. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness 
and sanctification and redemption, right? Because we are in Christ, Christ, by means of our union with Christ, He becomes our righteousness. We are clothed with Christ. He becomes our righteousness. Christ becomes our holiness. When it says that He becomes for us our sanctification, the Greek word for sanctification is the Greek word hagios. It's the same word that is used to translate to become holy or holiness, right? So because we are in Christ, we are cloaked with Christ, who is holy, Christ becomes our holiness. Christ becomes our righteousness, our holiness. He becomes our redemption, and he becomes our wisdom as well. Right? How does he become our wisdom? Well, Christ is the word of God, right? Christ is the divine logos spoken of in John chapter 1, right? He is the word of God made flesh, and we are brought into union with Christ, who is the word of God made flesh. And in the end, by saying, and all in all, that he that rejoices might rejoice in the Lord. 1 Corinthians one thirty one. So that, here's the reason, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? Sort of echoing Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 again. Right? In the end of the day, we have nothing to boast in of ourselves. Right? If, if we are saved, if we are sinless, if we are righteous, it is only because of Christ. It is only because of what Christ has done for us. It is only because of the... It is only because of the monergistic work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this is why the five solis of the, the Protestant Reformation that came out of the Pro Protestant Reformation end this way, right? I mean, what are the five solis? Uh, sola gracia, sola fide, uh, sola Christus, sola scriptura, and soli dio gloria, right? And that is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone. And the last one is to God be the glory alone, right? God gets all the glory. We get none. We get zero. We get zip. Um, we were dead in our sins, floating face down in the river, heading toward our eternal destruction, and we deserve to be there. We get everything. You know, yeah. We do. We, I mean, we, we get nothing, but we get everything. That's right. Yeah. That's right. We get everything. By getting all of Christ, we get it all. Mm -hmm. Right? We get it all. And we get it all because we get Christ. Right? Christ is God's beloved Son, God the Father. God the Father will shower His love upon God the Son and will bless him immensely for all of eternity. Because we are in Christ, we get all of that because of our union with Christ. And so what makes this doctrine so important to understand and to embrace and so comforting is, number one, it's, uh, it's encouraging for evangelism, right? At the end of the day, it's not about us convincing our friends or our neighbors, it's not about saying the right words. It's not about having all the right scriptures or apologetical arguments lined up. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't study apologetical arguments. We should. Apologetics is important. It's not to say we shouldn't try to memorize scripture. We should, right? Um, 
As the psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart, O Lord, that I might not sin against you, right? So we need to memorize scripture. We need to know God's word. Um, But at the end of the day, uh, Luther did say this, that it's our job to get the gospel from our mouth to their ear, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to get it from their ear to their heart, right? Our job is simply to communicate the gospel with people and then let the Holy Spirit do the rest, right? The Holy Spirit will regenerate whom he chooses to uh, regenerate. So there's encouragement there, but there's also encouragement for the salvation of loved ones, right? Friends and family. At the end of the day, no one is beyond the saving grace of God. Um, You know, no matter who they are, um, no matter what condition they are in, right? The comfort of this is that if you have a loved one who is in a severe car accident, and suddenly they're comatose, you know what? God can still save that person. They don't have to be able to intellectually interact with you, right? The evidence that we have of that is John the Baptist, right? Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Now, that's not ordinarily how God saves people, but it's proof that God can regenerate someone even before they're born physically, Right? John, John the Baptist was born again before he was even born the first time. Right? Right. <laughs> so, right. His, his born again was a physical birth, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, so, and so we see that and, that, and that's evidence that in the end, the Holy Spirit does the work of regeneration. And that's, that's encouraging for us. It's encouraging for our friends, our family, our loved ones that we're not around, maybe they live in other parts of the world, we can pray for them and know that even though we're not there to talk to them, the Holy Spirit can intervene in their lives somehow, open their eyes to the glory of Christ, and cause them to become born again.